Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I thought I'd take a little trip in a different direction. I know I've said in the past that I wasn't going to talk about current events for a while, but it turns out that I heard a little bit about the earnings call that Disney recently had, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And I also wanted to talk about a couple of other things that have come up in the last little while that are worth kind of spending a moment to talk about. So I'm going to do a little bit of uh, current events and talk about a little bit of Disney news. I'm going to start off by talking about the movie business and how Disney has kind of evolved in the movie business. Now, as the pandemic was raging on, movie theaters were closed and Disney was looking for ways to stream their movies and get their movies into the into the public's hands so you can watch the movies and uh, make it interesting. So they tried for a while just going to streaming first, then they did the hybrid model of streaming and actually going to the theater at the same time. And with the movie Shang-Chi, they're talking about actually putting it in the theaters first and then 45 days later putting it on the uh, streaming service. And Bob Chapek said something about, oh, it's another data point for us. And it was interesting to hear him use the word data point because he's thinking about it like a, a logistics guy more than he is like a, a, a guy who runs a company that's all about the entertainment business. But anyway, we'll get back to that in a moment. The interesting thing was, when you look at the way they were doing the, the hybrid model of streaming and going to the theaters at the same point, there was an interesting thing that happened. So uh, the movie Black Widow was released that way to both at the same time. And Scarlett Johansson, who stars as the Black Widow, was involved in some behind-the-scenes negotiations to figure out how to get paid for the movie. So typically, um, actors, when they're in a big-budget film, they will sign a contract that pays them a portion of the box office proceeds. So whatever the box office makes, they get a portion of that. They get some salary up front, and then they get some residuals from it being in the theater. So when a box office movie does really well, they do really well. And that's the way contracts are often written for these big-budget films. Well, it turns out that because they released it to both streaming and the movie theater at the same time, it basically undermined the ability to make money in the theater. So Scarlett was upset and wanted to find a way to generate a little more revenue off of the movie. And Disney was negotiating with her for a period of time, but they couldn't come to an agreement, reportedly. So she turned around and she wound up suing the Disney company because they released it the way they did, and it uh, under undercut her ability to make money. Now, reportedly, Bob Iger, who's the still the chairman of the board for Disney, was kind of upset or flabbergasted or flummoxed or something like that because he couldn't understand why she would sue. They weren't actively negotiating. But this is the kind of the funny point. You know, Chapek talks about it being a data point, and another data point is that you have to deal with your uh, talent and you have to figure out how to, how to get them to make money and how you work through the systems. Everybody wins. And because she's suing, it's going to be up to the courts to figure out how she gets paid or if she gets paid or whatever is going to happen there. And it may set the new standard for the movie industry. Now, there are several other actors involved with other 
production companies, and I think at least one has some affiliation with Disney, trying to figure the same thing out. Now, it could be that in the future, contracts are different, or it could be that Disney has to change their model for how they release movies, or these data points, each individually, will become something else and kind of change how this works. So I find the whole thing kind of interesting because it's a very unusual circumstance because of the way contracts were typically written, and the movie industry is changing. How do these things match up, and where do they go from here? So that kind of caught my attention because it was just one of those unusual things in the, in the earnings call that related back to something that had happened. And I don't know that anybody knows how this is going to net out and where movies are going to wind up going. For the short term, maybe going to a theater is not the right move. But in the long term, maybe going back to the theater is, is the right thing. You know, I, I don't know. And I, don't, I think every movie company is trying to figure it out. And every uh, box office, every theater company, every theater chain is trying to figure it out as well. And somehow or other, it will work out. I don't know if it's to anyone's benefit, but it will at some point. So there was another thing that came up in the earnings call that was uh, an interesting read by uh, Chapek. And what he said was he was talking about various things that were happening in the company. And he started talking about the word yield. And he wanted to talk about the yields of the company and how they were doing. And uh, it was kind of a strange thing to say. You know, talking about yields is kind of a unusual thing for a CEO to say when they're working for an entertainment giant. You know, yields are typically about bottom lines and money. And it was interesting to hear him talk about it in that way. They did talk about the fact that their their income was up over last year. It's getting better all the time. And he started talking about how he wanted to strategize an optimal guest experience and provide flexibility to the guests during these dynamic times. He talked about the way that we've got the uh, park operations going currently, the way that you have to make a reservation, the way that there's um, some things they're planning for in the future as far as like what they're going to do for uh, ex- guest experience. But the fact that he, that he mentioned it as yield tells you that it's sort of a different sort of animal, right? You never would have heard Walt Disney himself talk about yield. I don't think you would have heard Card Walker or Michael Eisner or even Bob Iger talk about the bottom line in that sense where he talks about yield. Now, this is an investor call, no question. But to talk about it in that way just seemed a little unusual in terms of them saying something that they wanted, they wanted to talk about the bottom line. And then he went on to talk about how park, the parks themselves, he wanted to reevaluate exactly how they could get to park loyalty and frequent visitors and get maximize their yield again on that. And he didn't want to have something that was necessarily governed by legacy. So it's sort of a new environment here. He was thinking about something new where he could actually generate more income. And as you look at the park pass they rolled out at uh, Disneyland, it's the, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, it's something like the key to the key to the world or something like that, or key to the kingdom, some, something, I can't remember what the name of it is. But anyway, it's a, it's a new kind of park pass that's not really an annual pass per se, and you do have to reser- make a reservation, it's got blackout dates, it's got all kinds of other things, and it's uh, optimally, uh, you know, marginally more expensive than what they had in the, in the past. So it's a different sort of animal that they're creating uh, there, where they're thinking about how it's going, what the park is going to cost and what it's going to uh, cost to be there. Now, Disney did say that they're going to reintroduce the annual pass, and they still call it annual pass, at least for now, at Walt Disney World. Now, whether that turns out to be exactly true or whether they do something like this in Disney World is the big question. What are they going, how are they going to make it work? Now, they also said that they're planning on rolling out whatever they're going to do um, and reopening up the annual pass program starting before the 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort, which is in October. 
So we'll see what they actually wind up doing, but it looks interesting you know, on the surface that there's probably going to be something different. Perhaps it'll be a different kind of pass. Perhaps it'll be the same thing, but I think the reality is that the park reservations are here to stay, and I think they're going to have more differentiation and more blackouts and more things that'll happen to increase that bottom line and make the yield greater. Um, I just found that really interesting. You know, he, he did say that guests have a tremendous experience no matter what day of the year they come, and that's what he was really thinking about. But right now, and he's aware of this too because he mentioned it, there's a challenge to, you know, there's so much planning that has to go into your visit that, you know, you have to plan for your days and you have to plan for which park you're going to go to. And there's no spontaneity involved at this point. It's sort of a, I have to plan everything up. And during the pandemic, this still makes sense. After the pandemic, I don't know. But here's where the turn comes. There's an interesting uh, thing he talked about uh, also, which was back to the Genie app. Uh, now, you may have heard me talk about the Genie app uh, previously. Um, the Genie app is Disney's new uh, sort of theme park access app. Um, and what he's saying is it will revolutionize and dramatically improve weights and guest experiences at Disney World. So this is kind of interesting. Now, back uh, before the pandemic, sometime in 2019 or maybe early 2020, they were talking about this Genie app to replace sort of the Magic Band. Now, it turns out that the Magic Band didn't have the, the Magic Band and the FastPass Plus. They didn't have the sort of um, financial success that they hoped it would. Again, yield. Uh, they, they fell short of their expectations. They spent billions of dollars creating this engine and all this enterprise to do things that were kind of, uh, kind of made things uh, process and they, they made it easier to manage your staff and uh, get people going. And your queues for the people that, were, that had vast passes and whatever were shorter than the, than the standby lines, but the standby lines now stuck out into the street, basically. They got much longer. So it was an interesting thing that they did. They spent a billion dollars, and they didn't help the guest experience necessarily. People got so fixated on looking at the app and trying to find a fast pass that they wanted or trying to log in the first day when the fast passes became available that it became a, a bit of a challenge. So they're talking about this Genie app as being the next generation. So... I think what I took away from him talking about the Genie app was that uh, FastPass Plus is probably gone for good. That would be my take on it. That there's probably no need to do the FastPass Plus anymore because what they will do is they will start to do more things about uh, talking about your experience and going into the park and having a, a full experience. Goal of, the goal is to make it user-friendly and uh, more personalized and have customized experiences for guests, putting them in control and providing even greater flexibility and choice. They'll be able to spend less time waiting in line and figuring out what attractions and dining options are available and more time having fun. And I think that's what it all comes down to. You know, he went on to say we've made significant investments in sophisticated technology and tools, created a revolutionary new multi-tiered service we're calling Disney Genie, and we're very, very excited about the new service. And more details are going to follow. But here's the takeaway, you know, the, the aha moment is, it seems like, you know, the whole thing about this, the park planning and the things they're going to do, this would tip the scales back to, hey, I'm going to find you the experience that's going to work for you. And... I'm going to tier it in a way where my highest value customers, the people that spend the most money, are going to have the greatest access to everything, and the people that spend the least are going to have the least access to everything. And you could see how they did that for a while when they started the FastPass Plus program. They gave a longer window for people who had vacation clubs and uh, who were planning large vacations. They gave a window that was longer so they could, they could plan some of their things, and people that were coming 
same day guests could plan it out like 30 days in advance. So, you know, you could see how it was kind of building that way anyway. And now it seems like that's going to be the next level. So my take on it would be, just based on the things that I've read about it so far, that they will, when you make your park reservation, you answer some questions about some of the things that you'd like to do um, for that park. And the AI system, the, the artificial intelligence system, will go against a database to say, hey, these things are available. Let's give you these and let's give you these options and let you sort of plan up a day rather than having to kind of plan, plan up, oh, what fast passes do I want to get? Oh, what do I want to eat? Where do I want to eat? Um, and do these things separately. How about planning up a whole day where I could do this? And you could leave the day fluid too. People could change what they're going to do. Um, you could see how they might let it be totally, you know, for a guest like me who kind of wants to let it be fluid, I could let it be fluid. I don't have to specifically book things. But this way I can get to do the things I want to do, especially if I'm higher value and I spend more money. Now, Disneyland uh, Paris introduced a new um, thing that was, I think they called it Max Pass, where you could actually buy Fast Passes, right? It was essentially changing the Fast Pass Plus system to be a purchase system. I think in the Disney World case, it won't specifically be that you're buying it, though I think if you want to get in on it, you're spending more, you are going to have more access to it. So I think if you're, if you're spending less, if you'd like to purchase into it to have more access, you probably can. That's my guess. Um, just based on the things that I'm seeing and hearing, it seems like there's an opportunity here for Disney to, again, increase their yield and, you know, kind of change the whole FastPass Plus experience and change the Magic Band experience. And now your phone, your portable device, your mobile device becomes the key to the world, right? They stopped giving out Magic Bands at some point. They don't give those automatically anymore to vacationers. Instead, you have your pass on your phone, right? So now your phone becomes that essentially, so you just kind of walk in and tap your phone and then your phone lets you in to the park and then you, you, know, you kind of go around and you do the things and you've already got it all planned up on, on, the, on the app. And the Genie app would probably direct you on where to go and when to go and probably will send you, you know, some sort of push notifications to tell you when to go to things and where to go and keep you on the path throughout the day and let you be fluid and change things. Now, Disney is going to have to beef up their internet at the uh, parks. As you may recall, when the parks were busy... Internet, internet slowed down significantly around the parks. And you'd have these moments where you'd have dead zones and you couldn't get connections and you couldn't get into something. Happened to me a lot. Um, and I'm sure it's happened to everyone else who's ever been there carrying a phone around. So they're going to have to beef that, beef that up. Now, it has gotten better over the years, but I imagine that you know as they continue to beef it up, it'll, it'll get even better. But this also allows them to uh, plan for staffing, to make sure they have the right number of people at the right locations, to make sure that they have the park hours already preset, that they've already kind of thought it through what they're going to do, and allows them to do special events if they want to. I read something recently um, on a weekend day, or maybe it was a Friday, uh, a couple of weeks ago. They were closing the Magic Kingdom early to have a special event there, and it was a really big special event. I don't know who was there. I don't know what they were doing, but it was a really big special event. And closing the Magic Kingdom early for a special event used to be basically unheard of. Even when Michael Jackson would come and he'd spend a ton of money to come into the park, he would always do it after hours, and it would always start at like 10 o'clock at night at the earliest, and he'd be there overnight. Now this time they closed the park at, I don't know, I think it was like, think they had everyone out of the park by eight o'clock so this new group could come in and they had fireworks and they did other things. If you're doing these things and you're planning your, your features and you've got people uh, scheduling things in a way through the system, you could actually do this more often. You could increase your yield by allowing the park to be open for other spe very specific guests at a certain time 
for a certain amount of money. So I'm just, again, I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, wow, this is, <laughs> this is an interesting twist on the way the Disney company ran things. And then speaking of money, you probably heard that the um, new Star Wars-themed hotel is opening up uh, at, uh, over by the uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. And it's an immersive-themed hotel where you basically board, uh, when you get, off, get into the uh, lobby, you board a shuttlecraft and you go up to your room and it feels like you're actually flying in space. And then you go to your room and you're in a galactic cruiser or something and you're there and you're, you, know, you have an adventure. And they, they have an immersive experience they have planned for you for the couple of days that you're there. I think it's like two and three day packages is what they have it um, geared up as. And you have these different things that you do. So it feels like you're sort of immersed in this idea of going into space. And oh, by the way, on their website and the FAQs, I found this kind of funny. They actually had a question, do I actually go into space? And the answer was, no, this is a simulated experience. Just made me laugh. I guess, you know, it's, it's uh, um, compelling enough where some people will believe that they're actually going into space. Okay, I found that, I just found it funny. Anyway, so they have this, um, this idea for the immersive experience. And it's like, wow, that sounds really cool. And then you look at the price point and you go, oh, maybe it's not as cool as all that. It's pr- so prohibitively expensive for the average consumer that it's almost like, okay, that's nice. You know, it's sort of noise. I'd rather just go and enjoy myself and enjoy the parks. So that's kind of how that works out. And you go, okay, fine. You know, okay, that's what they're going to do. But you're going to see, I think you're going to see more of these things that are very expensive, very high-tiered things that they're going to do where you have to spend a lot of money to get in on it because, again, it fits into that idea of the immersive experience. So I find the whole thing kind of intriguing in that sense. So we'll see where all of this goes. I mean, at this point, it's unclear how it's all going to work out, but it's just kind of an interesting notion that things are a little different in the Disney world than they used to be. And that reminds me, I almost forgot to talk about this, the, uh, the Rise of the Resistance. So... They've been doing the virtual queue for the Rise of the Resistance since they, uh, just before the, the park closed due to the pandemic. And they had this idea, they were like, okay, so what we'll do is we'll have people come in and as soon as you come to the park, you get a, um, you get a, a virtual queue. Uh, I, I guess originally they were doing it as a virtual queue as soon as you were in the, uh, in the entryway of the uh, studios. And they figured out that that wasn't an effective thing to do, so they did it as soon as you came in and then you got boarding groups and you did these different things to be able to, to get in. And now it's sort of a... You, you can book in in advance if you're coming and you know the day you're going to be there because you have the park reservation and you have, these, uh, you have this boarding group you're going, to, you're going to try and get. And so you go through this process. And it's a much more uh, cohesive process that actually happens out, sort of outside of the park. You don't have to go crowd into the parking lot and wait to try and get a boarding group at 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, you can do something else, right? You can do it a little differently. And I think this is where they're tweaking the whole idea of the sort of the, where the Genie app Genesis comes from, where they start thinking about how do I get people to come and spend time in the right places and be able to enjoy themselves and not have to worry about coming at five o'clock in the morning and standing there to try and get a a boarding group. So kind of interesting. And I think that's, you're going to see more of that. I think what's going to happen is you're going to have, um, when they do reopen the the, sort of the, the thought process, right now everything is standby. There's no fast passes. There's no anything. You just go up to the attraction and you ride on it. When they do get the park fully reopened and they have everything going on and, you know, sort of back to, I'll use in quotes capacity because I don't think they'll ever get to the capacity they used to have, they'll bring people in and I think they'll start to um, do more of these virtual type things. So there will be some attractions you can go up and you can stand there and you can wait and you can stand in the queue for a little bit, but most of them, they're going to let you get out of the queue with a virtual ticket, basically. So instead of fast pass, 
basically you just say, hey, I'd like to come back to this attraction at this time. And they go, okay. You know, and they give you sort of a virtual ticket number to come back. So I think the technology and the infrastructure and all the things that they did to get us to the point of using FastPass, the billion dollars they did on the My Magic experience, I think that's not wasted. It's just going to be reutilized in some way. And I also think that since Disney patented a lot of that, I think you're going to see other companies pick and choose pieces of it that they want to use, and Disney make, will make something on the transaction there because somebody else will use some of their patented ideas. Because I think the idea itself is solid, it just was hard to manage in a space that big. You know, you've got 100,000 people coming through the Magic Kingdom every day, and, you know, s s smaller but similar numbers coming through the other three parks. That's a lot of people to manage and have to deal with all of that stuff. So doing it on that scale was impressive. And now you can, you can license that technology for other people to use. So I think there's a lot of good that comes of this. It's just going to take a little while for them to kind of figure out how to get it all together and make it all work. So I, I find the whole thing kind of interesting. And I, you know, I just wanted to share those couple of nuggets that I picked out on the uh, earnings call because they were kind of interesting. There was some oddities there that make sense in, in the grand scheme of things, but are just kind of unusual because it's not something you usually see when you think about uh, Disney and talking about the entertainment business in that sense. You know, the, instead of being about strictly about entertainment, it was about how do I increase the bottom line? I, I guess that's okay, but it just seemed kind of odd for a change to hear it in that sense. Um, and by the way, there are the, I did say that the uh, 50th anniversary of the Walt Disney World Resort is coming in October. So they're gonna start a celebration. What they're gonna do is they're gonna make it an 18 month celebration of the 50 years of Walt Disney World. and. To me, that makes a lot of sense. Because you're limiting park capacity to a point at this point, because travel is difficult for some people, especially international visitors. Um, remember that you can't travel there if you're from South America or you're from Europe. So you know, you're missing out on all the people that would normally come during the summer. It makes sense to extend it through next summer, right? Go ahead a little bit beyond that and go all the way into the beginning part of uh, 2023. Um, and it would allow you to uh, have a lot more flexibility get more people engaged and really enjoy the moment. And Disney can kind of spread it out and sell more merchandise, I guess. So at the bottom line, that's not a bad thing. But I'm kind of happy to hear that because honestly, I still don't know when I'm going to be able to make it back. Thought of other factors going on, but I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to make it back. I got to tell you that the whole experience of having to uh, go in and make a park reservation is kind of throwing me a little bit. After 50 years of going to the park just on a whim, I just pick up, go there and enjoy myself. Having to think about making a park reservation and go, wait, I need to go on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday. Oh, wait a minute, which day am I going to go? Where today it's sort of like, I'm just going to go. Or it used to be, I was just going to go. Now it's going to have to be different where I think about where, when I have to go in and actually plan for it. And honestly, in my past, in my 50-year history with the parks, it's always been sort of a, hey, I'm going to go in, um, I'm going to show up, I'm going to drive up there. I'm going to show up and I'm going to go into whichever park I feel like when I'm driving up there, right? It may be that I have something in mind I want to see, but as I'm pulling up, I'm going to go, oh, I'd like to go to the Magic Kingdom today and just go. And I remember with my kids when they were little, it was always kind of like we'd wake up in the morning, which park do we want to go to? And we'd decide on a park. It was never planned in advance. So now this idea of having to plan it in advance and having to do it in a longer window for now is really throwing me for a loop. I can't quite wrap my head around that just that sort of planning thing about when I, when I can go. So I'm not quite there yet. Never mind the pandemic, I'll set that aside for a moment. I'm just not quite there as far as the getting to the parks and figuring out how to, how to use the, um, the process. And because I don't have the annual pass, I have to actually purchase the park ticket when I do it. So right now it's just kind of 
daunting, I'd say. Kind of unusual. Like I said, I got so comfortable with the way it was, it was so easy, that now it's different and it kind of throws me out, it throws me for a loop out there. It's just kind of strange. I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. It's one of those unusual things. Anyway, that's the, those are the things I wanted to talk about in the current events space. Um, I will continue to present any information that I hear or anything new as it comes up. And uh, that is it for this week. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes and talk about voting rights, and specifically, the Jim Crow laws. Now, you hear about Jim Crow laws in the news, and you hear about people talking about it, but what do we really know about Jim Crow laws? So, if we take a step back in history, and I would encourage you to read more about Jim Crow laws and why they came into being, but here's the quick summary. After the, free, the slaves were freed uh, with the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and subsequent uh, amendments that were made, there was a lot of animosity toward people of color. And so they had to create a series of laws to allow for them to be treated equally, people of color that is, and then also to allow them to vote and have equal rights when it comes to voting. Now, when the Supreme Court knocked that down, it could be debated whether it was still necessary or not. I would argue it still is necessary to have the Jim Crow laws because there is still a large prevalence of animosity or angst toward people of color in this society. So we, we've still got our concerns. Now, that probably should mean that we create new laws and create modernize them to some degree because time has passed and we should move on. Now, how do they become Jim, Jim Crow laws? Who is Jim Crow? So the story is that there was a theater actor who, by the name of Thomas Rice, who went around to different uh, cities and performed his vaudeville type act, right, in the 1860s, 1870s, in that time frame. And there was a popularized in the slave community, there was a caricature called Jim Crow. Jim Crow was a fast-talking, wise-cracking sort of slave who sang a song. And so Rice would go on stage and actually put on blackface, call himself Jim Crow, wear disheveled clothing, and sing these songs, and be a caricature, basically. Kind of sadly, actually, when you think about it. He was up there imitating a, a poor black man, basically. And it's kind of absurd when you think about it, but that became popularized in pop culture that this character, Jim Crow, was what the black man was referred to as, in a way. So these laws were trying to, to, to try and protect against people doing that. So I get the fact that you don't need that specific law because you don't see people doing blackface and making these caricatures in public anyway, anymore, but you do still have a need to protect um, black voters and other people of color and other people of other ethnicities from, you know, further harassment and, and this um, having the voting rights. So on that side of it, I think there is still some need there. Now, there's, there's another kind of an interesting side note here. I went to um, Ferris University's website, and they have a, um, a museum of racist memorabilia. And they talk specifically about how uh, segregation came around and how things kind of progressed that way. So here you are, are after the Civil War, but yet there's no equality among whites and blacks. And they point out that there was a Jim Crow system in place. And the thing, some of the things that came up were, you know, a, like a black male could not offer his hand to shake hands with a white male because it implied being socially equal. Blacks and whites were not supposed to eat together. Under no circumstances was a black male to offer to light a cigarette of a white female. 
Blacks were not allowed to show public affection towards one another in public. Jim Crow etiquette prescribed that blacks were introduced to whites, never whites to blacks. Whites did not use courtesy titles of respect when referring to blacks, such as Mr., Mrs., Miss, Ma'am, anything like that. If a black person rode in a car that was driven by a white person, the black person always sat in the back seat or the back of the truck. And white motorists always had the right of way at inter intersections. And you think about that and you go, what? what? <laughs> you know, these things still existed into the 1950s or early 1960s in this country. Uh, you know, it's just, it's crazy. And there was a, um, there were some other things that came up, like uh, never assert or even intimate that a white person is lying, never impute dishonorable intentions to a white person, never suggest that a white person is from an inferior class, never lay claim to or overly demonstrate superior knowledge or intelligence, never curse a white person, never laugh derisively at a white person, and never comment upon the appearance of a white female. These were things that black people, people of color, were basically not allowed to do in society. And that's because of the, 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 the way that all of this Jim Crow stuff came to be. So when you stop and you think about it, and I, again, I encourage you to read more about it and learn more, there's a lot of history here. And there's a lot of things to understand and unpack about the nature of us as society and the way we treated our newly freed slaves and how we continue to treat people of color and other minorities, for that matter, as a result of sort of this animosity toward them or this misunderstanding or this, this sort of you know, social guidance of things we've do we're doing. So, you know, this is why social justice is so important. This is why we need to get to the bottom of it and understand and really treat people fairly and equally. Who cares what, where they're from, what the color of their skin is? If they're good people, they're good people. That's all there is to it. So that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 